Welcome to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival. The rep is ostensibly why we're here tonight. It's Rob's third collection of short stories. The first two were, were bestsellers. I think at last count, the, his first book of short stories, The Body Surface, from 1983, has sold how many copies? It's done very well, but it's been on sale for 25 years. It's yes, OK. <laughs> a lot. Sold a lot of copies. Um, we'll get to discussing the rib later, but before we do that, I've been asked a couple of times today um, uh, an interesting question about the drowner, as most of you have maybe heard on the ABC radio or, or read in the Western Australia in the last couple of days. Rob's been on a road trip um, um, with some very important people. You might want to start uh, today by telling people what's happening with, uh, with your with very well-known and very well-awarded uh, novel, The Drowner. Yes. Uh, th- this week I've been um, travelling along the pipeline to Kalgoorlie and uh, regions uh, with the screenwriter John Colley and the producer Stephen Van Mill and p- uh, personnel from Icon Films who want to make a film of The Drowner. And I certainly want to see it happen. Um, it was a terrific journey. It brought back um, a, lot of, um, a lot of sort of memories for me. There was only one trouble. We were trying to present the desert as this place of um, uh, water famine and drought and bodies and prospectors dying in the dust and things. It's never looked more lush. It looked, sort of, looked almost subtropical. But it was, a, it was a terrific journey. And we hope to... Um, we have the backing of... Um, of Icon Films, and we have the backing of quite a few West Australians already, and we, we hope it's going to be quite expensive to make. And we're hoping, or the producers are hoping, and I'm, I'll only spruik for them for another 30 seconds or so, to, for the money to be raised so we can do it here. Previous um, people who'd owned the rights to the drowner wanted to save money by making it in Broken Hill, which would have completely defeated the purpose of the whole movie, and I... And I um, wouldn't give them the rest, rest of the rights when the option fell due, when the option ran out because of that. I just thought it'd be ludicrous making a film about the West Australian goldfields in Broken Hill. It just seemed, seemed insulting, actually, to everyone involved. So that didn't happen. And I forewent uh, what that project and the money involved and so forth. Anyway, someone who's very keen on doing it here, the producer Stephen Van Miller is a West Australian. Everyone involved is either a West Australian or an Australian, and that even includes, I guess, if we, um, if we cheat a little bit, Mel Gibson, who runs Icon Films. So it, 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 it will, I hope, be made here. It, I, I, I would think it would be marvellous for the West Australian industry and for the goldfields. Um, and, you know, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed, basically. I want to come back and ask you a couple of questions about why it's so important. Um, but I've just been naughty at the start. Two things I've quickly got to say to you. Phones off, please. No photos, which is the rule. Rob will sign books at the end, and we've got plenty of copies of all of his books, including The Drowner. And the most important thing I didn't do at the start, and it's the change of venue, I'll blame it on that, not my bad memory. This session is being recorded by the Perth Writers' Festival podcast partner, 720 ABC Perth. From next week, a large selection of sessions will be available as podcasts from abc.net.au slash perth. And for your chance to win an MP3 player, don't forget to fill in the entry forms on your way out. Now, I've done all my housekeeping there. Let me go back and ask um, or, or put a question to you. One thing I noticed the other night, and you, uh, Rob was kind enough to, to invite me to the, a lot of the people who are involved in, the, in the, uh, the making of The Drowner into a film, I was impressed with the passion of everybody there to tell that particular story. And the more... Why is it important that the, the, the rest of Australia hears that story and sees it on film. Well, for, for those who haven't read the book, one of the, um, the, the backdrop to the, to the book, and I hope the film, is C.Y. O'Connor building the pipeline. And it, he has always been a hero of mine growing up here. I feel his story is almost operatic. It's so powerful. Um, everything about it, you know, which is well known to you here, isn't well known in the Eastern States. It isn't well known overseas. Um, and I wanted to write a fictional work that included that as sort of its um, main backbone. Um, 
Well, that, that's it, really. I wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to get that in the book. But my, my central character is a young engineer who is recruited by O'Connor on that trip to London he made with Forrest when they, when they raised the money from, um, from the city in London, the, when they raised all the money to, make, to, make the, to erect the pipeline. They, O'Connor was also on a recruiting drive, and he recruited uh, quite a few young, bright engineers, and my imaginary man was one of those. In the, your pause there was great. I, I looked at you and thought I'd missed something. Um, when you live in the east, as I do, and I've only travelled to the west in the last couple of years, there seems to be a lot of things over in that part of the world that people there don't know about this side of the continent, including so many of these great stories. In in for putting it on film, you've brought in um, a, a Scotsman, who's uh, who's a, who's a doctor who lives on the eastern states, but with a great um, um, CV of, of credits to his name, but primarily the people looking to the team are going to be from, from, from uh, Western Australia? Uh, well, the, the producer is, certainly. Uh, m- much of the funding will come from here. We've already got the backing of the state government and Screen West. Um, I'm a West Australian. Steve, the producer, is a West Australian, and all the others. I mean, there's, there's, there's various... You can toss around names of actors and actresses you'd like to see. Um, some of those would be from here. Um, but, I mean, that, that, that gets into the realm of what the producer does, and, I, you know, I don't want to uh, get into that particularly. But it will, be, it will be very much, as much as it is possible to be, it will be a West Australian effort, and that's as, as it should be, I think, for what is one of our um, probably major, major stories, a major, you know, a major pieces of drama. Before we talk about the rip um, as, as, a, um, as a genre and with the short stories specifically in the book, you've done a lot of work the last few years editing... Um, and, and making a large contribution, which I know personally, to, to the genre of short fiction. Why has it? Why have you continued to write short stories? Why, throughout your career, 83 was the publication of The Body Surfers. Yeah. Um, the publication of Bay of Contented Men was in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, 89, yeah. Yeah. So, well, why have you continued with the short story? Why has it always been a popular form uh, for you? Um, I find it's the best way of. Um if something occurs to you, um, it might be an anecdote or, or a powerful image or um, a powerful tale, that, um, a, a strong idea that you want to, want to tell, to me it can't wait to be maybe um, it, it sort of intruded into a novel. I just like to get it down and, um, and see it as a story. I mean, I, I see stories, short stories uh, to me are just as important as novels. Um, collections of short stories really got me going, I, I think, as a writer. The stories of... Um, People like John Ch- John Cheever and um, John Updike and Raymond Carver and Chekhov. Um, I think there is, as, as literature, there is certainly um, of equal standing and um, interest as, as novels. And um, I admire short story practitioners who do it well. There's young, a lot of young Australians whose work I've noticed and, and published, uh, like Nam Lee, whose books you know going gangbusters, and uh, Kate Kennedy and others who. Have who are here at this festival, whose work is, work is really terrific, really world-class. And, um, you know, I'm just encouraged that this particular section of the art form is, uh, is, is really doing well. Our, our short fiction is very, very strong. It, we were talking about this in the, just before we came out. It's, there's something different about our short fiction. Um, I think it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a lot more raw. When you, you've talked about Nam, Nam Lee, but, and we'll talk about your own stories later, uh, in the same light, and Kate's stories, but many of the, the different and the younger writers that you helped, and I know you've mentored many of them in those two editions, 206 and 207 of Australian Short Stories. Our fiction's different, isn't it? It's got our short fiction, we've got so many people writing it now. And like mm-hmm. it, been a, it's never died, but there seems to have been a, a growth in it. There's a lot more, there seems to be a lot more magazines around now. Why? Why have so many people writing short fiction? Um, well, they're sort of writing it against what they were told. We're always told by publishers that it doesn't sell and things, but, I mean, the body surface has been in print for 25 years. It's just been made a Penguin classic, and it's kept, if not um, kept the, the wolf from the, um, from the door, it's certainly kept it from the front gate, as far mm. as I'm concerned. <laughs> and they, you know, they do... I, I don't know that people um, so much... Um, read magazines, uh, read uh, short stories and establishment magazines as, as they did. There's a lot of new, young, fresh and original magazines coming out of um, Sydney and Melbourne and the country. And I know that when I collected stories from... I put ads in the paper and things to... I wanted to 
when, when I um, produced Best Australian Stories 2006 and, and the same one in 2007, I thought I won't just go through the magazines and get the established people. I'll see if there's anyone out there who can write well, who can write short stories well. And, of course, that opened up a huge bloody can of worms. Tell and them how many you had to read. I remember you telling them. Um, I, well, it was two, two and a half thousand each year. <laughs> and there was one stage, because I live um, in a subtropical place and been, um, the, the weather had been rather humid, after I'd, I had all these uh, piles of A4 lying around the house, you'd open the, you'd open the front door and the whiff of sort of damp... Um, paper would, would really strike. But it was like you, you could sort of smell the midnight oil that had been burning. You could, you, you could sort of smell the, the effort and the, um, you know, the, the blood and sweat and things that had gone into these stories. So anyway, I read, read them all both years. But it meant that I didn't do any other work for, for two years, you know, for the, for the princely sum from Black Ink of, you know, $5,000 or something. Um, but, but in that, I, I did get something of it. I did, I did get a... It, it, rekindled my own interest in writing short stories, and so, which is how I came to write The Rip, suddenly, in, in between novels and uh, memoir and things. And um, I just found it really, really invigorating reading all these, all these stories, mostly from new young people and from everywhere. I mean, I published stories from Alice Springs and Darwin and country Western Australia and so forth. And one, one of the best things about, about uh, new Australian stories compared to, say, new American stories or whatever, is the ones that I saw the ones that I selected anyway, didn't have the... Um, they didn't sort of smell of the writing class, which, you know, a lot of the stories you get, they just... You can just see the writing class. You can see the, inst- you can see the whiteboard in the, behind them. Um, and um, I tended not to choose those stories, if there's anyone here that runs writing classes with whiteboards. I tended to choose the ones that really, that really um, seemed to come, um, you know, from the heart, that seemed to come, that, that, that showed a bit of um, raw emotion, that sh- seemed to show a good, strong storyline. Um, so anything that was too clever or, um, or seemed to be just like, um, uh, you know, as if it had been submitted uh, as, as part of a, 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 a writing seminar, you know, a seminar or something, tended not to get um, used. So that's a good hint if people are submitting stories to these things. You know, don't bother that, really. Um, <laughs> Write, write, what you, write what you think you've got to write. That's, that's really um, the, the message. Jay McInerney, the American writer who writes novels and short stories, compares um, writing a novel with being in a marriage and a short story to having a one-night stand. <laughs> now, you knew I was going to ask you that because I gave you that quote two weeks ago. Um, but, but when I talked to a lot of writers, and I was talking to two last night here at, at the opening about the writing of short stories, everyone tells me a different reason that they like it, you know, that, that, that they come at it a different way. But isn't it, at the end of the day, it's just a lot shorter and sweeter to write them than it is for the two or three years of the novel? Is, isn't it that you get a sharper hit out of doing it? And, and a, isn't that in some ways what it is? I get, well, if, if, um, if a novel's a marriage and a short story's a one-night stand, what's a novella? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, um, um, I think that sounds, about, sound, sounds the best. Yeah, yeah, OK. <laughs> That's a fair call. Um, we go to the rip now, and uh, and I must say, when I read the rip, um, I read it some time uh, ago, and uh, very early. I think I was uh, lucky enough to get a very early copy, and uh, um, it's unusual for me, and I don't want anybody in the audience to think I'm particularly naughty for what I'm about to say, what I did to a book. But I wrote some words in that book at the end, and I don't normally write in books. I use pasty things in, but I wrote in very heavy pen and I wrote three words um, at the end of it and I, the last story in particular, um, for those of you who have been lucky enough to read the stories and that, involves a, uh, um, a new age man riding on, on, on a tractor. Uh, uh, Sargasso, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Yes. We'll discuss him in a minute. Uh, he, but um, I, I wrote when I finished the book, I wrote three words in there and it's, it's, I say to all of you who haven't read it, it's one of the most powerful uh, books of short fiction I've read, and uh, um, uh, it's it, it, the most important uh, emotion that I felt and feeling I had when I finished was one of loneliness. Um, it's a, a book of short stories that's had virtually universal good reviews, and again, I recommend it all to you. But all of the reviews mention um, 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 th- that the, the depth of feeling that that so many of the characters uh, have. Raw was another word that I wrote there. And strangely, and I, I'd like to ask you this, did you write the story, The Rip, 
at, at the end of the sequence of those stories, just out of interest. When did the, when did that actual the title story get written? Um, about halfway through. And halfway through. Yeah. The third thing that I wrote down, that, that lonely was was one of the words, uh, as I said. But the third thing that I wrote down there was a, was a lack of control. Um, and the rip was a. I, I wondered whether the, the the intention was to write the story. Sorry, write the original story and then write the stories to fit in with it. But I felt that there's so many characters of all ages and shapes and sizes in that in that collection that don't have much control over their life. You know, it, it, it's it's it is a raw set of stories, Rob. Did you did you feel that when you when you were writing the the, the stories in the rip? Um, yes, I did. The, the circumstances when I wrote it, I'd recently moved to a new place, uh, the north coast of New South Wales, where I knew no one, um, with um, uh, my family, or the younger members of my family and my wife, and immediately we got there, the marriage broke up. Now, I don't want to go into personal stuff, but um, I felt for the first time in my life um, without a rudder really. Um, at, at, but quite soon, and this is the thing about being a writer, I guess, the thing that in a way saves you uh, is that you think this isn't a bad story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, or stories. So, so in a sense, that underpinned that um, way I was feeling, which was pretty bloody desperate, um, I suppose channeled into my imagination and enabled me to write some of the stories. But then, as you rewrite them and rewrite them and rewrite them, then you think, um, without being too pretentious about this, the artist in you takes over and then thinks, well, you've done, you've done, you know, you've vented your spleen. Um, now let's see whether it's a good story or not, and worth worth it, whether it stands up as a story. Um, and by this stage, you know, time time passes, time passes, and um, you get. Back on your, you know, back on your emotional feet and so forth. And then I started looking at them as whether the stories worked or not. I tossed out some out, kept some in, changed them. Um, but there was, I think it's just as well we moved. <laughs> um, the um, the result the result was the stories in the rip. And but one of the things about um, a new locale, and, and this is I've often found this travelling as a previously in a previous life as a journalist and things. When you're away from home. When you're in a foreign country, you do things you wouldn't do at home. It is very different. You might have a hangover, you might be jet-lagged, but everything is, everything is brighter and sharper. Uh, you notice things more. You tend more to take notes and so forth. You notice your surroundings stand out in a different dimension from, from your normal humdrum daily life. Even if you live in an interesting place, to go somewhere else, you see it with, you see it with, more, with different yeah. eyes. And I was, in a, I was in a new place in heightened uh, emotional circumstances, and so and in a, in a place that is very that is very scenically beautiful, with um, some zany zany residents, zany people, um, and so all this came together, and I and I felt um, well in terms in in literary terms invigorated really, and so I dashed all the stories off really quite quickly, um, and enjoyed enjoyed doing it. There's a lot of people who live in the northern rivers of New South Wales outside the, the bubble, for want of a better word, that is the Byron Bay area that consider it's a foreign country. I thought that was an interesting metaphor. Um, for those of you who haven't been there, zany is a very kind word, I would have thought, <laughs> to describe where we live. Um, I'm lucky enough to live in the same general area. I, I can't think, though, of anywhere that would, would have given you more fodder or being more fertile mm. once you got yeah. a clear sail. Yeah. Yeah? yeah, absolutely. For your journalism as well. Uh, you're, you write a lot of journalism, particularly in the early part of the year. Is that the normal pattern with your writing? Yeah? Uh, between books, if yeah. uh, I, I do, I do some, yeah. And I write a column in the Melbourne Age, um, which works quite well because the, it works. Melbourne is, Melbourne is you know, very... Well, the, the other column that I alternate with is a very urban, arty, um, black-clad Brunswick Street sort of column, so um, it works quite well. How, how long do you get when you move? Like when the, the interesting thing there about talking about travel, my, some writers stay in the same place their whole career and travel with their imagination and whatever, but others are moving every few years. 
When you moved, when you picked up, I can't remember, you've been there three years now? How, how long have you been five there? Years. Five years, isn't it? Mm. Sorry, five. Yeah. Okay. If, for that period of time, do you become like everybody else after a certain period of time and, and view things differently? Do you still feel like an outsider in, in that environment where you are now? Um, I do feel a bit of an outsider still, yes. And I think, you'd, but you know what, well, country towns, even if they're, even if they're um, coastal, um, trendy places, um, tend to regard you as an outsider unless your grandparents were born there, basically. Um, that you can't presume to be a local in these places, especially in a place like Byron Bay or Etiria, can mm. you? Not, not unless you've been there 20 years or something, or since mm. Nimbin or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm an outsider. But I think that's the role of... I don't think that's particularly um, unusual. I mean, I think, I think the writer's role is always is the outsider, in a way. Mm. Um, but I must say, the only place... Um, I do feel totally at home is here, which because there's more of me invested in this place, and and there's more of Perth invested in me. I, mean, we, I think the place where you spend your childhood and adolescence remains, you, know, you can't do anything about it. It's just um, it's etched into your psyche. Um, I mean, I lived in I've lived in Sydney more than I've lived anywhere else in my life, but I've n I don't think I've ever written a story about Sydney. But I've certainly written plenty about Western Australia, mm. and and will continue to. You at the, the Melbourne Festival earlier in the year, and I listened to a podcast, um, I think it was from the Melbourne Festival, where you're talking about your, your early years as a writer and your influences of, in writing and the Herzog book and, and so on. And I remember you saying there, which will bring me back to, to the rip again, to, to my um, the opinions of it and the words I wrote down at the end. You wrote that a writer wears three hats. Uh, the first hat is that of an innocent, the second hat is that of a literature, and the third hat is that of an everyman. The, the Rip to me is very much a book about every man, and I know so many people have told me, particularly blokes who've read The Rip, who don't read, who said that it hit a lot of chords with them, particularly about relationships. You know, that it, it, the theme runs right through the book, but it never seems added on or it, 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 it fits in, in all of the stories. Is that, have other people given you that same sort of feedback when, uh, from the stories? Um, the, review, the reviews have tended to say that, and I, mean, I regard that as a great compliment. If, you, if people who don't normally read enjoy, read it and enjoy it, yeah. Um, I don't know whether there's a there's a dearth of um, heterosexual men writing about relationships or not. Uh, funny to be seen, funny to be seen as as a, as a rarity, but um, but I just you know write it as I see it, and um, I guess if you've um, been around long enough, you've got. A lot of things to write about. I think the difference, though, uh, in terms of a lack of the men writing about relationships is that you still write, whether it's in this or any of the other books, the female characters are all strong. You know, the, 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 There's always a balance there. But I think so many of the characters, whether it's Leon Kay in the first story or whether it's... Is it Eric, the farmer? Yeah. In, in the end? From the first story to the end story in the book, you know, they're all real people, but... but you know, the, the, their emotions uh, uh, and the way that their emotions, the characters express their thoughts and so on, are, are unusual in, in, in fiction in the sense that, that a lot of men associate. That's what men are saying to me. In particular, women loving it always seems to be the case with your fiction. There's a lot of men that read stories in that particular book. I think the, the stories in there, the kayak, the water person which I, and, the, and the tree person, I heard you read again today, um, is very much about relationships, that story, mm. isn't it? Mm. Uh, and so on. Um, why is the new age... Um, I, I, again, we live in an area where um, um, there's a lot of uh, cosmic acti activity and it's not all up in the sky, um, where there's a lot of um, um, new age practices. I'm being kind so far. I'm doing all right here, yeah? yeah? I haven't been sarcastic, but... In one of the reviews, I heard that people thought you were being harsh on the New Age, and I went back and, and read the sectors in there, and you were being harsh. Um, I'm only joking. Um, but the, the interesting thing for me is that the, the, one of the main male characters um, in, the, in the last story, Sargasso, Sargasso? Mm. Yeah. where'd you get that name, by the way? It's the name of the sea. The name of the sea, is it? Yeah. yeah. I'll talk to you about names in a minute. If, again, if you haven't read the stories, there, there's some really interesting names in here or... Um, new names for some of the characters. But he seems an interesting contrast. I don't think you were cynical or negative about the New Age in the stories. Mm -hmm. And I think he's an interesting person to end up with because he's sort of together. 
Yeah. You, you, you know, he's he's this bare-chested, lithe, um, hip-swirling bloke yeah. who, who uh, manages to secure someone else's wife into the love shack. That was mm. a bit, uh, I thought, a bit rude. He has a place called the love shack. But but you don't... He's a real character. Like, you and I have seen lots yeah, of him. And yeah, yeah. So the New Age was... You had some fun with the New Age. In I did stuff. have fun. I, look, I, I hope I didn't uh, sort of isolate them as worthy of parody, although some of it certainly is. But I found it interesting going up there and meeting... You know, you see someone and you introduce yourself at a party and you realise that you're the only person there with two names, with a surname. And, a, um, and I found that interesting to begin with. And the, and the, the names... I mean, I, I met a, um, I met an accountant from Camberwell in uh, Melbourne who's now Zeus. Um, I, met a, I met a guy at, this, at the same party. I met this guy and asked him what he did. And he said, I'm a pilot. And I said, oh, yeah, and what's your name? He said, Icarus. So I'm not flying his airline. <laughs> <laughs> and, his, and, his, and his girlfriend is Lotus Blossom. And she... Um, and it's, when you, I must say, when I'm introduced to Lotus Blossom and Icarus, I find it hard not to smile. <coughs> and Lotus Blossom, uh, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm a writer. And she said, I'm, I'm a writer. And she said, um, I'm translating, I, I'm, I'm writing um, the thoughts of, um, because he, he speaks to me, you know, cosmically, of um, five um, Native American uh, shamans and you, you, here's their names. And um, so I, you know, I wrote down, um, you know, Wolf, Wolf Who Runs Fast and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then when she said, what do you write? And I said, oh, you know, I write novels and short stories. And she sort of almost, it was so boring, the idea of it, not having, writing my own work and not, not being channeled by, by, by Wolf Who Runs Fast, that, that she really had no, <laughs> no interest in me thereafter. She turned away, Icarus, and she wandered off. <laughs> That's what the reviewers don't get about the part of the world that Rob lives in. That, that he's toned the stories down. And that, <laughs> not the other way around. I know people there that are on their third name. You know, they, they go through, don't they? They, they change. And, and you meet them and they've changed again. You know, and it comes to signing a, a legal contract or, or something and, and they revert to their own name, but that's the only time. But it is a really... I, I remember Peter Carey years ago saying that it was really difficult to write about hippies, but, you, you've, mm. you know, the people, the New Age people that you've written about, you've given them a fair, a fair hearing in here because mm. they're, they're more unusual than, than appears in, in the short fiction here, not, not the other way around. Mm. You know, you don't have to write them up, do you, in, no. in our part of the world? No. I met, um, I met another a man called Lingham, which I, I seem to remember it was, it was a word that meant something. <laughs> and, and I introduced him, I was introduced him on to someone else, and I said, um, you know, Margaret, this is Lingham, and he said, um, Brian, if you don't mind. <laughs> as well as New Age people, the, 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 uh, the stories have what, uh, what uh, Ray Carver um, the, the great American short story writer said years ago that that is the essential part of great short stories. He always went further than everybody else with, uh, who said it was tension. He said it was menace. I've never read a batch of stories with more biteys and things in there that can kill you than appear in these stories. The, 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 the you mean animals, creatures. animals. Yes, right. I didn't mean people. No, I was. I've, I've moved off the new age. <laughs> no, but I've never seen so many stories. If it's uh, sharks, mosquitoes. Um, I, I won't class a cane toad as something that can kill you, though it might if you bit it, I guess. But what, what, what is it about all these biting things and snakes that fascinated well, you? Well, part of it was moving into, into an area where there are, are a lot of them. Yeah. You know, there weren't too many in Randwick where I lived previously. <laughs> um, and they're there. And one night, I mean, Australia Day last year, I got, I, there was in the middle of a big storm. I was woken by the storm, got up to go to the toilet, and there was a black snake crawling towards my small girl's bedroom. Uh, and I've written about this in the, in the uh, Sun-Herald, um, and I was faced with the idea, what, what do I do? I mean, I'm, I'm fairly green, uh, as in Green Party, um, but the snake was heading towards her bedroom, slowly, but heading towards it, um, and I couldn't call... There's, you know, there's plenty of people up there, you know, wires and all these organisations that get... that will come and get, in daylight hours, um, a snake who's in the wrong situation, one way or another. But this is, you know, about... 2.30 in the morning, um, I thought I can't call anyone, there's a huge storm going and I thought I'm going to have to do something about it what weapons have I got 
and outside in the tempest there's a mattock, and, you know, somewhere. Outside in the tempest there's an axe, and I thought, I can't chop up the lounge room floor anyway. Um, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, uh, in the, in the, you know, the, the, the second drawer you have, you know, the ones under the cutlery, um, we know where there's messy things, but there was, there's a, I've got a barbecue spatula <laughs> for scraping fat off the beef master. Perfect so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, go, I quickly go and get that, hoping the snake um, won't have gone into her bedroom. And I, when I come back, it's getting into her doll's house. And this, this sounds, this metaphor is so bad, it's like a bad Spanish film. There's a snake wandering through her doll's house, knocking over little tiny mummies and daddies, and, and uh, plastic, plastic tables and little plastic mummies and daddies and, and kitties, with its little narrow head that um, the sorry brown snake was, that the brown snakes have. Um, it was too big for the doll's house, so it comes out of that and heads towards. Um, and I'm, I'm still in my undies actually, because I just got up to. <laughs> it's a hard not. I haven't got pajamas on or anything, and I certainly haven't got snake-proof leggings on. <laughs> and fortunately, it then it then goes under the sofa, so I'm able to kneel on the sofa with the bolster between the snake and me, and jam the barbecue spatula down on top of it, and hold on. And it threshes around, like, you know, and time passes. You know, days, decades pass. <laughs> And the spatula isn't quite thick and sharp enough to break the neck of the snake. So it's, it's in, and I'm sorry for the snake. I don't want to be doing it to the snake. I'm desperately sorry for the snake. I don't want to get bitten either more, even more than that. So I'm holding and holding and holding and holding and holding and I'm getting a cramp in the arm and I'm holding and holding and it's still thrashing. And then it does a couple of things. <clears throat> it sheds, its skin flies off and lands beside it and does a sort of a thing, a th- you know, a thing to threaten the predator. And that starts going like that too, and threshing and threshing and threshing. So there's two things going threshing and threshing. I'm not sure quite whether I've got the spatula on the right bit. <coughs> then it does another thing, and then exudes a terrible smell like a cadaver. That's been, this is obviously another ruse to, for animals, like, you know, a skunk-like, but it smells like, smells like a snake that's been lying, dead and lying in the sun for about five days. So it's got, there's a smell, the two things going like this. My little daughter then wakes up, and she's, she was then seven. She comes out from her bedroom all with her hair, you know, all in a tangle, walks past me to the toilet, you know, tinkle, 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 walks back again. <laughs> and says, um, what are you doing with your bum in the air? <laughs> and I then say, and I didn't want to scare her, so I just say, oh, I'm just, you know, just getting rid of the snake. You know, you hop into my bed and um, turn the light on. So, you know, she wakes up then. We, you know, we do it anyway. The snake dies, and I throw it out into the storm. We go upstairs and have toast and plum jam and she's, you know, sort of scared. So then, um, is this story going on too long? No. It's very good. So anyway, she then says, but one, of, one of the things that we do, and she's with me about three quarters of the time, is I sing songs to her. We have a, we have a, we have a lullaby, th- lullaby repertoire of four songs and her favourite is, is um, Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino. So I'm singing, so we've got the house all shut against any more invading snakes. There's a storm outside. It's really hot and humid. She's holding my hand in bed, you know, tightly. And she says, sing Blueberry Hill. And I start singing it. And she says, no, the Fats Domino version. So, <laughs> so, so I'm, trying to get, I'm trying to get my voice husky in, uh, husky in New Orleans enough to sing his version. You know, the, I'm still thinking about the snake and the things and the smell and, and the, the whole works. And... And then I start thinking that previously that day, and Australia Day too, which seems to be particularly pertinent, the day before Australia Day, I, um, I'd had a, a, a particular birthday during which my life policy had expired. So the idea of a letter coming from AMP say, with life and expire in close conjunction. <laughs> and at 3am, when you worry about, you know, 3am is a bad time for that sort of something, snake, you know, death, poison, blueberry hill, life expired, <coughs> AMP... Um, all this, all this stuff spinning around in my head, until she finally falls asleep. Anyway, and her hair, her hair and breath, brush my cheek, and I get that welling of love that you have for your children, and everything became all right. So that was the, that was the problem. Would you like to hear a story? Rob uh, thought he might do a reading. Would you like to uh, <coughs> hear a story? Yeah. <coughs> Now, this is a story called The Whale Watchers. <clears throat> uh, it's a story about fathers and sons, or sons and fathers, I guess, really. The last time Tom ever saw his father, the humpbacks were migrating north from the Antarctic to spend the winter in warmer Queensland waters. 
Tom thought whale watching seemed a safe proposition. Otherwise his father and Sonia were just self-consciously hanging around the house, exclaiming at the bird life and picking up magazines and putting them down again. The trouble with living on the north coast was that southerners felt bound to include you and your spare room in their holiday plans, even their honeymoon plans in the case of his father and his bride. Until he received the wedding invitation, Tom hadn't even known his father had a girlfriend. His father was a quantity surveyor, widowed not quite two years and hitting 60. Sonia was a divorced allergy product salesperson, 45-ish, Tom guessed. They'd met in Bali the year before while getting over their separate sorrows around the pool bar at the Oberoi. After three days' in-house observation of the new couple, with four still to go, Tom found it hard to imagine his stepmother being depressed in Bali or anywhere else. Sonia was a vivacious and decorative person. Even her asthma and migraine hadn't kept her down for long, and she'd smiled through both attacks those first two days. The honeymoon was difficult for Tom to get his head around. He didn't know if he and Chloe should be trying to entertain the older couple or allowing them complete privacy. In their presence, he felt strangely impatient and crotchety, as if his and his father's ages and roles had been reversed. At breakfast, he feigned hostly heartiness, poured orange juice and didn't know where to look, just as his father had behaved with him and his overnight girlfriends when he was 20. At night, he heard the murmuring as he was preparing for bed, but thankfully the spare room was at the far end of the house and he was able to block out the possibility of any intimate noises with a series of closed doors. That side of things didn't bear thinking about. I think they're cute, said Chloe. He's not your parent, Tom replied. Anyway, his father and Sonia were just driving through on their way north to Port Douglas, heading for two weeks on the Great Barrier Reef, and, presumably, as much privacy as they wanted. Before whale watching, Tom suggested lunch at a beachside cafe, The Undertow. It was full of young backpackers sharing pasta in various accents, admiring their new tans, and repeatedly counting out their money in heaps on the table. Isn't this younger generation growing much taller than us oldies? Sonia said loudly. It doesn't matter which country they're from, even the Asians. They make me feel like a midget. What nonsense, said Chloe. What are you, five nine? Five nine and a half, said Sonia, the same as my hubby. She fondly patted his bald patch. He's five eight, said Tom, unless he's grown since I was a boy. <laughs> Let's order, shall we, his father said. He squinted at the name badge on the waitress's breast. He left his glasses behind. What do you recommend, Stephanie? Shoshani, said the waitress. It's all on the board. Calamari's off. Over lunch, Sonia loudly admired the artwork on the cafe walls, amateur representations of sunsets, dawns and rainbows over Mount Warning, busily took note of the artist's names on a napkin and only nibbled at her prawn salad. Before Tom and Chloe had finished eating, his father already had his wallet out, waving away any opposition, but then landed in a credit card disagreement. As Shoshani kept saying, the cafe accepted only Visa and MasterCard. Shoeshine, I must say I find that unacceptable, said his father, waving his platinum Amex. Is there anyone in authority I can speak to? Sipping the dregs of her mango smoothie, Chloe had a coughing fit then, and she and Tom avoided each other's eyes. Tom ended up settling in cash. His father was still seething when they reached the Cape and Tom parked the car. They hiked along the steep coastal path to a cliff below the lighthouse. His father and Sonia deliberately fell behind and when they caught up, his father's mouth was drawn tight and he was breathing heavily through his nose to cover his puffing. He looked a little flushed around the gills. Tom dimly remembered some paternal health warning sign four or five years before. His mother had insisted on dietary, tobacco and alcohol changes. No one had dreamt she'd go first. Chloe and he waited until the older couple caught up. Sonia had her arm hooked in his father's. Outdoors, with her flying blonded hair and pink cheeks, she suddenly looked years younger, buoyant and allergy-free, and surprisingly at ease in the elements. Southerly winds whipped the tussocky grass, buffeted their faces and made everyone's eyes water. The surly Pacific lurched and rolled towards South America and crashed on the rocks below. In the distance, a lone feral goat flicked into sight skittered improbably up the cliff face and disappeared, a mere blink later, before Tom could point it out. He inhaled the misty wind, exhaled, inhaled again and sighed, less deeply this time. OK, he thought. He touched his father's shoulder. What about this, Dad? Impressive or what? 
Most easterly point in Australia, his father read from a sign. His eyes sought another sign. Do not climb on the railings, he read aloud. Parents, watch your children. Darling, keep a lookout for whales, said Sonia. I am, I can't see any, his father said. You've got to keep looking, Chloe said. Look towards the south. Suddenly one pops up unexpectedly. You'll see it breaching or blowing. Possible rockfalls, keep inside the railings, his father read out in a louder voice. As if you wouldn't, he scoffed, if you had a modicum of bloody sense. Tom told them to watch out for the rare white humpback known as Migaloo that appeared off the coast every year. Wouldn't you think he'd be called Moby Dick, he muttered into the wind, to no one in particular. Who'd go outside the railings anyway, his father said. Only the Jap tourists taking their bloody snaps. You'd be asking for trouble, slippage, rockfalls. He gripped a nearby railing and attempted to shake it. It moved perhaps a millimetre. None of this looks too stable if you want my professional opinion. Why would you name a whale after a restaurant, mused Sonia. She beamed. Just asking, have you been to Moby Dick's? Nice seafood, but fairly pricey. (laughs) His father was shaking his head in wonderment. Wouldn't you think some bright spark would have cottoned on to printing the signs in Japanese? They all huddled together on the cliff as the southerly gusted into their faces. For a long moment, no one spoke. Brrr, shivered Sonia. Come on, you whales, she called brightly, like a soccer mother urging on her child's team. She jogged on the spot for a moment to get warm, then reached out and smoothed Tom's wind-ruffled hair with both hands. She patted his shoulder. Here you go, stepson. Thank you, wicked stepmother, he said. Better keep your eyes on the sea or we'll miss them, said Chloe. When you two are finished larking about, we might get on with the business at hand, his father said, pointing at a foamy chasm below. I saw something big just then and you two missed it. They don't come that close into shore, Tom said. Probably a dolphin, said Chloe. This is a popular spot for dolphins. I saw a dorsal fin. Could be a shark, his father said. It'd make it worthwhile if it was a shark. Sonia asked then, Darling, did you look like Tom when you were young, dark-haired and wiry? What? I don't know, probably. He frowned and jerked his coat collar around his chin. Yes, I did, back when I was six foot two. Why do you ask? (laughs) Just wondering. They're very alike, Chloe said. Your chap and mine. Mum always used to say that, said Tom. His father pulled his collar higher against the wind. His jacket looked new, a fashion choice for a younger, hipper, perhaps bigger man. The shoulders slightly overhung his own. I think we'd better head off a bit earlier than we thought, he said. We'll make tracks and hit the highway this afternoon. I'd like to make Brisbane before tonight. Sonia looked slightly surprised. He doesn't like driving at night anymore, she said. Look, said Tom, suddenly pointing out into the bay. There's a whale. There's whales where we're going, said his father. Thanks. I'll leave a couple of minutes uh, for for questions in a sec, but I'm interested to ask you, I think that's your 16th book by my very... That's your 16th book. What changes over time with how you as a writer, particularly with the body of work that you've now got, what changes... In, in, in what you feel when you put a new book out. Like you, can you remember back to your early years and when you were publishing then and then what it's like now, what the difference is when a new book comes out for you? It's surprisingly the same, actually. There's still the same, um, <coughs> there's still the same excitement. There's still the same feeling of, um, of uh, worry and anxiety about reviews. That certainly hasn't changed. Um, perhaps even intensified. Um, there's obviously, obviously um, confidence grows. I mean, something's got to... You yep. know, I do, I do know what I'm doing a bit more and I think I write better than I did. When I look at my first books, they very much, to me, seem like early, early work. Um, Not so much as short stories, though. Your short stories don't date <coughs> very much. A lot of short fiction that I read, I can date it to the decade particularly. You go back, if people go back and read A Bay of Contented Men, Sisters, the story in there, there's a story in there... You read some of those stories that were written, what, 20 years ago now, I guess. Mm. They haven't dated at all. Your short fiction remains very strong and doesn't, doesn't date. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in <coughs> when books come out and asking you when books come out now, is it, are you more nervous, for example, about the reviews coming out now, even with a body of work the size that you've got? Uh, there's, I'm, I'm equally nervous, but in a different way. I think there's more. You never know how many um, um, 
It's always difficult. I think every writer would say the same. It's yeah. always difficult. You don't. There's people out there with their own. You know, there's critics out there that seem to want to get you and things. You know, you know, you don't. I just, I'm just, I can't believe that this book got a hundred percent good reviews, even from a couple of people who, um, yeah. who've previously yes. slashed in. I know who they are. I read the reviews. They yeah. were. Yeah. It was pretty well universal. But all <laughs> the short fictions pretty well had the same. All three collections have had wonderful reviews, haven't they? Yeah, they've all done. They've all done. Okay. Yeah. Mm. I asked a, another writer with not a body of work as long as yours recently and they said to me that, that, that in their particular instance it got worse for them, not easier. And I would have thought it would have been the other way around, but, mm. but, but, but it's not. There, there's, a, there was a, there's a very nice feeling with the first book, of course, when you, when you walk past Dimmick, say, or you know, a big shop, for the, you know, for the first time with your first book, and I was 28, and see your book in a, the, the window, uh, the shop window, there's nothing really that you'll never get that feeling back again. Mm. Um, you know that was that was pretty special, um, and standing by while people are sort of and this doesn't change. You see other people in the shop, sort of frowning, and they think, mm. and you sort of want to sort of nudge them, and they go, yes, <laughs> move on to Bryce Courtney. <laughs> Anyone happen to read the piece that uh, Rob wrote uh, in the last few months about book tours? And uh, did anyone happen to read that? Uh, we should have uh, put five minutes <laughs> aside for that. that. I've circled that right around the world. Um, anybody here would like to have a question? I think we've got a mic floating around here somewhere yeah. up the back. Yeah, there's plenty of them. Down the, the gentleman in the green or the dark shirt just down here. There's a mic on its way down. Thank you. The question is, how do you polish rawness or, or stories from the heart? When you are collecting the anthology, the whiteboard issue, you, you encourage writers who have rawness to to celebrate, but then when you talked about your own anthology, you said you did much polishing and I was curious about that, how you do that as a writer. Um, when, well, I think when Chris was talking about rawness, I don't think he was meaning roughness particularly. Were you? No, it, it, what I, but, but uh, what I was talking about at the time was the rawness of the emotions of some of the characters. You could feel, for me and many other people who've read the stories in the rep, you could feel people, people's anxiety, their fears, uh, their loneliness. But I think you were, that was a different thing. I think is that, that's what I was referring to. But I think you were asking the question also what you do with all those stories that you get together. How would you recommend polishing them? Is that what, in essence what the question was? Yeah, no, yeah. I, when I mean, um, it's just a matter of um, turning them into better, looking for alternate words now and then turning them into better pieces of fiction. Really. I didn't mean that you, I soften the, the blow such as it is. Um, it's, it's just a matter of, and sometimes I might increase it. Um, it's just a matter of um, editing them so, they're, so, they're, so they work better, you know, so they're a bit more polished. And um, I mean, you, you, when, you, when you're writing something quite fast like a short story, you often find you've used the same word over again without, without realising it. So it's a matter of going through and not, re not repeating yourself, basically. The gentleman behind, I think, had a question. Or I was just wondering, Robert, do you, have you tended to write short stories fairly regularly throughout your life or do you tend to write a lot in short, concentrated bursts with gaps in between? Um, yes, I write them in, in, in bursts. Um, I, I'd written two novels before I'd written one short story in my life, which is not the usual, the usual pattern. Uh, most writers, you know, sort of train, use, use short stories as a training ground for writing novels. I did it the other way around. Um, what I do after writing a particular book, if it's a novel, say, I, I feel like doing something else the next book, like a, a, maybe a memoir or a book of stories or something, only because it's such a long, it's such a long process that in a way you've got to keep yourself entertained as well while, you, while you're doing it. And it's like... If you're painting your house, you know, you, you, if you do three, three, I mean, it's a pretty strange um, example, I guess, but if, you pa if you've just painted three blue walls, there's a faint element of excitement on moving on to a yellow wall um, or, or just changing colours. And this is it's the same thing, really, with, um, with writing. You know, if you've written a large slab of words of a particular sort, it, it is faintly exciting to move on to another form. Any other questions? Just down the front there, lady. Hi, Robert. Um, you say you feel really at home in Perth. Do you think you could ever actually live here again? And if not, oh, I could easily. Yeah, I could. The, the only thing that's stopping me is that is that little girl and her right. teenage brother. So you think you'll probably stay on the north coast of New South Wales? You have a spare room, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> where do you live? Where, what suburb? <laughs> we were talking about this earlier day. Anywhere near the water, you're good for that, aren't you? The water. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, if um, if the film comes off. Um, 
and this is a very big if and fingers crossed, um, I would like to buy somewhere here as well, I must say, and live in both places. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be the best way of doing it. Um, no, I could easily live here. And each, each time I come back, I feel more and more drawn to it and more more loath to go home. But it's not... Um, I love Byron Bay and I love the look of it and I love the I love the, the surf and the beaches and the, the, the landscape. Um, but but this is still... No, I can't do anything about it. This is where my, um, my mind's eye concentrates on this landscape. Have we got any more questions? Just uh, in the front here. I was wondering, when you write, do you aim at an audience? Do you no. just write from your heart? Well, I don't aim at any audience. I think you're, um, that leads you to write crap, basically. Um, no, I think, it may, I think you, you, you're then thinking commercial and you then underplay what, you know, whatever talents you have. I, just write, I try and write the sort of books that I like to read, really. And hope that there'll be enough people who also like to read those same sorts of books. Paul Jennings has written some brilliant short stories appeal to kids and adults. Sorry? Paul Jennings? Yeah. He's written some brilliant short stories that appeal to adults and kids. So I was just thinking perhaps that might be the way you'd like to go. No, I prefer to write for adults. But um, interestingly, um, without me trying to do this, these days, kids uh, maybe kids are more sophisticated, but but, all, but most of my books get onto um, the HSC list in Sydney or the VCE list in Victoria. I don't what's it called here now? GCE, is it? Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously, you know, 16-year-olds and above uh, are reading are reading them, um, and that's a very valuable and important market for me. But I don't intend, I don't have it visualise a 16-year-old reading it as I'm writing it. I just think of myself. We've probably got time for one more question. The lady over here in, in the black. Um, well, fantastic speech. It was lovely. Um, I'm just interested that you seem to describe yourself as an outsider and that your creative well seems to come from the overflowing of living in other places like northern New South Wales and so on. And flowing on from an earlier question, if you did come home home being Western Australia and followed your heart in a sense is there any fear that that would dry up? Um, that's interesting mm. that's very interesting I don't know, I don't know um, because part of what I, part of what I, when I write about this place I'm writing there's, there's longing coming into it as well, so that's a very good question um, maybe but, there's, but, but Western Australia is a big enough place that maybe I could just you know, come back here and write about Broome or something <laughs> as Rob did today. Um, just before we conclude, I, I'd like to leave you with a quote about short fiction I've always admired. Edgar Allan Poe said that short fiction is the class of composition that best fulfils the demands of genius. Now, he was talking about himself at the time, but I don't think Edgar Allan Poe would be disappointed with the rip, and I know you won't be. Uh, Rob's uh, going to hang around and sign some. Thank you for, long for coming along and for moving so quickly, and, and thank you for coming to our session. Good night. Thank you. You have been listening to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival.